0: This talk was given by Patrick Yunnan Kelly at the Zen Center of New York City. Yunnan is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So good morning. Let me start with this uh, quote. Zazen is not meditation, contemplation, visualization, or mindfulness. It is not to be found in mudra, chakra, mantra, or koan. In neither its stillness nor its functioning, its seated nor its active form, can Zazen be said to be meditation. Zazen is not single-pointed mind, no-mind, aware mind, or trance mind. It is not revealed in words and letters. It is only transmitted one to one from Buddha to Buddha. It's a way of using your mind and living your life and doing it with other people. So, uh, if anyone remembers uh, Daito Roshi, um, who was the founder of the order, he would. At, at, we have a Zen training weekend every m- month at the monastery, and he would say the same thing every every. Uh, time, to the point where it's like, you know, the lyrics of a favorite song, you could basically uh, sing along with it. Um, but I, you know, I heard it so many times when I was living up there and I I always like wondered, what is he actually saying? What does that mean? It's a way, it's not meditation. Zazen is not meditation. So when we, in beginning instruction this morning, uh, and usually, uh, you know, I talked about how zazen is the, the practice of seated meditation that we do here. Uh, zazen actually means seated meditation. The word zen is uh, it's a, a Japanese word. Zen comes from chan. The Chinese word comes from the Sanskrit word dhyana, which means contemplation or meditation. And za means sitting or seated. So zazen is literally sitting meditation. So why does he say zazen is not meditation? And what is zazen anyway? Why do we sit zazen? To become a better person? To put an end to suffering? To become enlightened? What are we doing actually when we sit zazen? So I thought I'd take this up. Um <laughs> all right. Where they say, fools uh, jump in where angels fear, fear to tread. Um, and hopefully I won't give you any answers. Um, but hopefully I, I give you some questions. So of course, meditation is an important part of many Buddhist traditions. Um, this is the meditation school, Zen Buddhism. You know, traditionally, it's practiced more by um, monastics and the laity, but that's changed in the West. And there are other practices. You know, there, there are schools that focus more on devotional practices or study of the sutras. But I thought I'd go back to the, the Buddha's very first teaching, which is the, the four noble truths, and sort of contextualize the practice of meditation. So the, the Buddha taught, his first teaching was that one, life is suffering, dukkha. Two, suffering has a cause, and that cause is craving, thirst, desire. Three, because suffering has a cause, it has an end. And four is the path, the path to the cessation of suffering, to the liberation of suffering. It's Sometimes called the Noble Eightfold Path, and the uh, you know it's often translated that the components of that path are are right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, right view, and right intention. So eight. Um, But and another uh, teaching, he sort of divided this path up into into a. He just divided it up differently, and he used three instead of eight. If you've noticed, uh, Buddhism really likes numbered lists. Um, it likes it so much that sometimes it will divide stuff into different numbers. And, um, but the other, the other one is, uh, say, the threefold trainings, which is a different name for the Eightfold Path. And that is uh, shila, our, our um, uh, ethical conduct, samadhi, which is what we think of as meditation, and prajna, or direct experiential insight into the nature of reality, intuitive wisdom. And then in the, in the Mahayana, uh, which developed 500,000 years later than the Buddha, and this is a Mahayana tradition, uh, there's a group of practices called the six paramitas. So there's dhāna paramita, or giving generosity, Shila Paramita, which is the same Shila, uh, ethical conduct or morality. Kshanti Paramita, which is patience or forbearance. Virya Paramita, which is uh, enthusiastic effort. Dhyana Paramita, it's that same Dhyana Chan Zen, meditation, the practice of concentration. And then Prajna Paramita, uh, the practice of intuitive direct wisdom. So you get the idea here that there in all of these teachings and throughout uh, Buddhist history, meditation is mentioned as a component of the, of the path, but not not the whole path. Uh, you know, and this is very important because, especially, I think maybe maybe less these days, but but especially early on in the West, uh, the emphasis was really on just meditation. That's what most people were interested in. I mean, it's what I'm interested in mostly. But I've, I've Got it through my thick head that there's a few other aspects, you know. Slowly, and so, so you know, what is what is this about? Is is azan the same as Samadhi, or, uh, part of the threefold training, or uh, Dhyana, part of the six paramitas? And actually, uh, I mentioned in beginning instruction, uh, Dogen, the monk who brought. Um, Zen from China to Japan in the 13th century. And in, in one of Dogen's uh, teaching texts called Bendola, uh on the endeavor of the way, a student actually asks him this question. And it was recorded. The student says, um, among the threefold training, there is a practice of samadhi. And among the six paramitas, there is a practice of dhyana. The zazen you speak of seems to be something like this. So why do you say that the true teaching of the Buddha is contained in it, in this part. And um, Dogen says, do not identify Zazen with the Dhyana or the six of the six paramitas or the Shila or, uh, or the Samadhi of the Threefold Training. Um, know that the practice of Zazen is the complete path of Buddha Dharma and nothing can be compared to it. And in another um, Another text, he says, his beginning instruction, he says, the zazen I speak of is not learning meditation. And then he says, it is simply the dharma gate of ease and joy, the practice realization of totally totally culminated enlightenment. It is the manifestation of ultimate reality. So again, what are we doing when we sit zazen? Where does... Actually, where does zazen actually begin? Does it start when the timekeeper rings the bell? Is it confined to the cross-legged position or the kneeling position or in a chair? Is that zazen? What about when you stand up and walking? We did a little bit of walking meditation this morning. What about working, laughing, eating, talking to someone? Are these outside of zazen? Is, has it ever happened that sitting in the cross-legged posture is not doing zazen? Maybe uh, maybe people have some experience of that. What, what does not doing zazen look like anyway? Is it, is it having lots of thoughts? If you have lots of thoughts, does that mean you're not doing zazen? Dogen says, in the beginning, the, the moment you sit down, dullness and distraction are struck aside. And so I think he means even in the midst of dullness and distraction, dullness and distraction are struck aside. And when does Zazen end? When you lose track of a thought, of the counting, and start, start chasing thoughts. At the end of the period, when the timekeeper rings the bell. When you head out the front door, when you go to work on Monday morning. You know, these moments of transition are really interesting, like when we're not quite in Zazen and we're not quite in Kinhin. We're not in the Zendo and we're not quite out. You know, they, they talk about this a lot in the, in the Tibetan tradition. They, they use the word bardo for a transitional state, sometimes between the state between life and death. But they'll say that meditation is a bardo. Life is a bardo. Life is a transition between birth and death. Dreaming is a bardo, the transition between going to sleep and waking up. So again, back to Daito. Zazen is not meditation. It's not contemplation. It's not mudras and mantras and it's not mindfulness. It's a way of using your mind and living your life and doing it with other people. So what does this mean? Is, Is it a way of relating to other people? Is that what it's about? A kind of relationship? You know, it's a word we use a lot, relationship. What does that mean? We speak of different kinds of relationship, relationship to the self, relationship to others, family relationships, romantic relationships, work relationships, healthy relationships, toxic relationships. I recently had to um, write an essay giving a brief account of my life. Um, and. For, for a project that I'm, I'm working on. And, and um, I didn't know what I was gonna write, and so I, when I wrote it, um, to my surprise, I ended up writing about different encounters with d- different people that I'd had in my life. Some of them people that I were family or that I knew for a long time, and some people that I just briefly came into contact with, or sometimes people that that I never met because either, I found out about them through either you know, I was writing them or they were dead or before I even met them or or something. And and I in particular I, I remembered when I when I started sitting um Zazen, started practicing formally at a a small temple in, in Germany actually almost thirty years ago. And it was outside of the city about an hour, and so I had to I didn't, there was no bus or train connection there, so I had to ask for a ride every time when I wanted to go there. I had to find someone who had a car and then ask them, reach out to them and ask them. And then I had to make conversation on the way there and back for about an hour uh, in German. <laughs> <laughs> and I did this three times a week, and I, I, I'm just naturally a sort of, um, you know, less so, but very sort of... um I don't know, uh, introverted or, or kind of inward temperament. And so this was really challenging for me to have to do this. It was actually kind of terrifying. But I wanted to sit so bad that I did it. And I, I thought of it as, well, this is just, I want to sit, and so this is just the price I have to pay. This is what I have to do in order to get to what I want. Uh, and so I did it. Uh, but, but you know, now looking back, I, I sort of wonder, maybe it was the other way around, maybe reaching out and and building that relationship to people, maybe it was part of the practice, actually. Maybe the meditation was part of it, was that it was useful and that it got me to do that, because I wouldn't have done it otherwise. You know, I suppose I could have just, once I learned how to sit, I could have just stayed at home and done it. And it, you know, it's funny, it never occurred to me to do that, I don't know why not. I mean, I think I, I do kind of know it's important. So I'm grateful that, that I never had that um, idea. And we also, we also do hermitage practice in this order at the monastery. You can go up and spend a, a day, a week, a month in, in the hermitage on the side of the building. You pack all your food up there, and there's no one but you and uh, the trees and the animals You just practice in solitude for the time that you're up there. No schedule. But I, you know, I found when I do that, that, that I inevitably, although I'm physically in solitude, I bring all the other people with me in mind. And then for that matter, if you know, you think about it, you can be in, in the Port Authority and be totally alone amidst thousands of people. It's, it's just funny, our, as, as human beings, we have, we sometimes have difficulty with other people, lots of difficulty, and we sometimes have difficulty with solitude. And we go back and forth, you know, no wonder we, we keep trying to escape our human condition. What are we to do? And as I, as I practice more and more, I, I'm starting to, to, understand that, that every person I encounter, or every even every situation I encounter, everything has something to teach me, if I'm willing to have the mind of a student. That's the important part. It's not always a pleasant lesson. It's not always a lesson that I think I want to learn. But it's a lesson that I'm being offered. You know, of course, people can be disappointing, heartbreaking, even awful, at times, and and wonderful too, of course. So, if someone really pushes your buttons, what what are they teaching you? I remember I heard once the Dalai Lama say that he considered uh, Mao Zedong uh, to be one of his greatest teachers. You know, the man who is, if anyone, most responsible for for the invasion of Tibet and and scattering of Tibetan culture. That was, that really struck me. He said he was one of his greatest teachers. He taught, he said, Matsudong taught me patience and forbearance, which are indispensable. You know, we can never know what the the lesson um, we're going to get is until we learn it. That's why it's a lesson. And some of them maybe we won't get in this lifetime. That's okay. So I've, I've, as I said, I started to, to really appreciate how um, profoundly indebted I am to other people. S- some, some people, you know, as I said, some of them I know and have met. Some of them are alive. Some of them are dead. Some of them are, um, I'm sure, that I'm not aware of and may never be aware of. You know, Dino says, it's only transmitted one-to-one, from Buddha to Buddha. And it's not that people won't hurt you. They will. It's pretty much guaranteed. I mean, even no matter what kind of relationship you're talking about, and even with the best of intentions, I mean, hopefully we try our best not to. But inevitably we cause harm. And we're harmed. And that's not even people. That's just... Reality does that. Old age, sickness, and death. That's what the Buddha was talking about. That's not all he talked about, fortunately. <laughs> so how does this relate to other people? It's to um, zazen. It's a way of using your mind and living your life and doing it with other people. It turns out, I think, that um, we really need others, other people, other beings, non-human beings also, sentient beings, even insentient beings, mountains, rivers, we need them. Living beings, dead beings, ancestors, real beings, imaginary beings, so gods, hell beings, People in novels and movies, they affect us. We say that, I mean, if you think about it, the self is composed of non-self elements. The self can't be the self without non-self. Sentient depends on ancient, sentient. The living depends on the dead. In his, uh, his essay, I was just looking at uh, James Baldwin, his, uh, his essay, The Fire Next Time. And in that, that letter to his nephew, he's talking about, specifically about American racism and the, the construction of white identity. And he talks about what he says, what he describes as white people's uh, profound desire not to be judged by those who are not white. But then he also says that, that he sees that, that so much of what he calls white anguish is rooted in white people's equally profound need to be seen as they are and to be released from the tyranny of their mirror. And then he goes on. All of us know, whether or not we are able to admit it, that mirrors can only lie, that death by drowning is all that awaits one there. It is for this reason that love is so desperately sought and so cunningly avoided. Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know that we cannot live within. And he's talking specifically about race, but I think his, what he's talking about is, is even larger than that. I mean, the context is important. I don't want to um, erase that, but he, I think he's also talking about something fundamentally human and that we, we want to be seen as for who we are. And All the wonderful things and the terrible things. And also that prospect terrifies us. We don't want to be judged or hurt. But to be alive is to be vulnerable. And if you want to be alive, really be alive, you have to take that risk. And you will get hurt and you will cause harm. And so to get back to where I started, I think to practice zazen is to take that risk and to take responsibility for the outcome. You could say zazen takes off the masks and shatters the mirrors, the masks that we present to others, the mirrors that we present to ourselves, the masks that other people present to us. To practice zazen is to ask the question, who am I? And if you get an answer... See it, let it go, and keep asking, Who am I? Who am I? To see to the bottom of one thing, the self is to see to the bottom of all the 10,000 things. So when all the masks are removed, when skin, flesh, bones, and marrow are stripped away, what's left? Dido used to often, in his intro talk, he would also often talk about a room use the metaphor of, of a room in a house, and he would say, when you take away the windows and the door and the walls and the ceiling and the floor from the room, what's left? Is there some essence of roomness? No, what's left is the whole universe, just open space and everyone in it. When your heart is utterly broken, what's left? the whole universe and everyone in it from the pit of hell all the way up to the blissful realms and everything in between and the avatamsaka sutra it says the king of truth reposes in the palace of sublime reality the light of the reality body illuminates everything the nature of reality is incomparable and has no marks the ocean of teachings Numerous as atoms in a Buddha realm are expounded in a single word, all without remainder. They can be expounded for oceans of eons without ever being exhausted. Who am I? Yeah, it's one way of putting it. It's very beautiful language. You could also call it the charnel ground. Whatever the charnel ground is for you, that place where you just can't bear it anymore. Well, what does this have to do with ordinary life, these heavens and hells and Buddha realms and ocean reality? I think these teachings, what they're talking about is ordinary life. That's all they're ever talking about. It's just we're not really accustomed to seeing in that way, or or perhaps we're so accustomed to seeing it that we go to sleep to it. And so that. The teachings are kind of poking at us to open our eyes a little bit more. So, ordinary, extraordinary. Say that Zazen transcends the ordinary and goes beyond the extraordinary. What is it? There's a story. A monk once asked uh, Master Zhaozhou, What is meditation? Jojo said, "It's not meditation," and the monk said, "Why is it not meditation?" And Jojo said, "It's alive." Zazen is the practice of coming back to life over and over and over again. So when you get out of bed in the morning, you touch your feet to the ground. How inconceivable! And someone calls your name and you respond, "Yes, how marvelous When the rain falls, the ground gets wet. If you've ever had a, a, a brush with death and escaped, uh, I think you you'll know this experience of seeing how vivid and brilliant um, ordinary reality is, but we we Inevitably, we go back to sleep. The absolute works together with the relative, like two arrows meeting in midair. So, it's it's not easy being a human being, and it's also not difficult. The more I practice zazen and ask, investigate what is zazen, you know, the more I appreciate what a remarkable gift I've received. And, and not the form, not just, when I say that, not just the form of meditation, although that's part of it, but what Dogen calls the manifestation of ultimate reality. And in the end, I think it has, it really doesn't have anything to do with meditation or even Buddhism. So, you know, I, I, and I also really appreciate more and more all of the our ancestors, men and women in India, China, Japan, and now here in the West, who have um, dedicated their lives to to passing this on. Dado says, it's not revealed in words and letters, and it's only transmitted one-to-one, from Buddha to Buddha. From Buddha to Buddha. That means you. So I just want to end... Dogen Dogen has a a fascicle where he talks about Zazen, called The Point of Zazen. And he ends that with a poem. So I just want to read the very last stanza of that poem. I think it does a nice job of of talking about Zazen. He says, Clear water all the way to the bottom A fish swims like a fish Cloudless sky, vast and bright A bird flies like a bird. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.